This podcast was recorded on Thursday, January 31st at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. When you get within six months of an election or the thought of an election, uh, the rhetoric is going to get higher. The, both the, uh, the, the, the facts will get stretched. Uh, the truth will get exercised. A lot of things will, uh, will happen because people are looking at their own political agenda rather than the greater good or the, uh, the true facts or the honesty of the situation. over, we've made it to 2019, which means it's officially an election year. Woohoo! MPs seem rested, returning to Parliament in fighting form this week, ready for this year's political roller coaster. Right off the bat, a diplomatic debacle with China gave the opposition a chance to poke at the Liberals' competency on international files. It's clear that the Prime Minister's foreign policy is a disaster and Canadians are paying for his mistakes. We will take no lessons from that leader of the opposition whose only uh, policy pronouncement on foreign policy has been to come down on one side of the most divisive, de- destructive debate to happen in the UK for an awfully long time. That Prime Minister came down on the losing side of that debate in the United Kingdom. The member opposite just did it again. The House may have moved to the West Bloc, but the agenda remains the same. Uh, I will say this, I don't know how to hide from you guys yet. I don't know the way to avoid the media scrum, so, you know, I'll be exploring the back pathways in coming days. Speaking of pathways, the Conservatives found some new angles of attack for this high-stakes year. If Justin Trudeau is re-elected, your taxes will go up. Everything is tax, 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 tax. But they and the NDP are also, of course, sticking to a familiar refrain. The Prime Minister has never had to actually worry about money, and so he doesn't worry about Canadians' money. Why doesn't this Prime Minister start to care as much about Canadians as he does about Bay Street billionaires? The Prime Minister was unimpressed, and the Liberals stuck to their old favourite line. That all we get from the Conservatives are warmed over Stephen Harper attacks. Harper Conservatives. Harper Conservatives. The election is less than nine months away, so what do you need to know? I'm Althea Raj, and you're listening to Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. Our political pundits are here to help set the stage, the journalists, the partisans, and the pollster. It's going to be an exciting year in Canadian politics and for us here at Follow Up. But up first, we take a look at the landscape. I'm Ryan Maloney, Senior Politics Editor at HuffPost Canada. And I'm Zian Lum, Politics Reporter in Ottawa. I've asked you both here because before I bring in our political watchers, I wanted to quickly run basically all the big stuff that we missed on follow-up and that I missed when I was gone for a month in India with my father. I thought it was going to be boring, nothing was going to happen, but actually there was a lot of news. So guys, what stood out? What matters uh, as we head into this spring sitting? 
Okay, well, first of all, Scott Bryson announced that he's not going to run again, and he stepped down as Treasury Board President. So that means the Tories have a shot at the riding that he's had for more than 20 years, and it meant we got to have a cabinet shuffle. Uh, Probably the biggest thing that happened there was Jody Wilson-Raybould was moved from Justice to Veterans Affairs, which was widely seen as a demotion. Uh, Seamus O'Regan was moved over to Indigenous Services, and Jane Philpott was uh, tapped to be Treasury Board President. So what was interesting about Jody Wilson-Raybould's move was that she clearly was not into it. Uh, hours after the shuffle, she also took the unprecedented step of issuing a very, very lengthy statement that kind of just gave an overview of her accomplishments in the past three years. But there was also one line in there that said that in her capacity as Justice Minister, she also did her best to speak truth to power. So there's a lot of speculation among pundits and um, other MPs as to what that exactly means. And that's kind of uh, fueled a lot of uh, post-shuffle discussions. Yeah, it seems like she's suggesting she's getting punished. Feels that way. The Liberals also announced that they are, you know, they finally called those by-elections. They're going to be the last ones before the general election, um, set for February 25th. And of course, all eyes are on Burnaby South, where the NDP leader is trying to get that seat. But basically, as soon as the race started, uh, the Liberal candidate there was gone before she even made much of an impact. Yeah, so the Liberal candidate was Karen Wang, and she was a daycare operator. So she got ensnared in some uh, Liberal candidate career-ending drama after she posted a WeChat message. So WeChat is a Chinese social media platform. Uh, The message was basically trying to rally voters in Burnaby South by identifying herself as the only Chinese candidate in the race. Mm. And how people should vote for her uh, versus Jagmeet Singh, who is of, quote, Indian descent. And so the Toronto Star, or I guess the Star Metro Vancouver, caught wind of this post and uh, publicized it. And it led to, uh, well, the end of Karen Wang's career as a liberal candidate. I'm guessing the liberals weren't too thrilled. No, I, yeah, exactly. After she resigned, she she sort of asked for a second chance. She went, you know, begged for another shot, and they said, uh, no thanks, we're moving on. <laughs> so some good news for the NDP. Well, yes and no. At the same time, the former party leader, Tom Mulcair, went on TV to say that a whole bunch of NDP MPs weren't re- planning on running again. I know that a lot of my Quebec colleagues have already announced that they're not running, and several others have confided in me that they're not going to run. So I think that's an obvious problem. And also popular NDP MP Nathan Cullen also suggested that he may not run again, uh, but that he would make his final decision known after the February 25th by-election. Okay, so not necessarily good news for the NDP. What else happened? Well, throughout the month, of course, as we expect, the prime minister held a number of town halls in Kamloops, uh, Regina, Niagara. He has another one scheduled tonight in Milton. Uh, Liberals just so happen to have a star candidate there, former Olympian Adam Vancouverden, who is trying to unseat Lisa Raitt, the deputy Tory leader, this fall. So that's a big, 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 (laughs) it's a big fish to try to take down. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's really important to know that uh, these town halls kind of started as a damage control measure after his much ballyhooed vacation at the Agacon's residence. And now the Prime Minister has been kind of reframing them as a, a tradition for him. Yeah. 
Prime Minister Harper had a tradition too. It was to go far away from people in the Arctic where the pictures were pretty, but um, people didn't necessarily hold your feet to the fire. Uh, what did we hear about uh, across the country from Canadians who actually had a chance to put their queries to the PM? Well, obviously there was a lot of questions about their carbon pricing plan, um, which I felt gave Trudeau an opportunity to maybe test some lines that he's going to be using uh, on the campaign trail this this fall. Um, you saw him sort of saying, hey, listen, we don't want to hide our head in the sand here and pretend that there's no problem. And the choice that folks will have in the next election comes down to, do you want to be part of not just fighting climate change, but being part of creating the solutions and a stronger economy for the future? Or do you want to hide your hand in the sand and pretend that there is no problem we have to deal with. Um, this is, I know, you know, he's taking this on head on, so that, that that was basically his approach. Some pretty strong language on climate change. Mm-hmm. Speaking of language, what's also uh, shifted is the Prime Minister's approach to handling hecklers who have very uh, torqued, I guess, messages about immigration. So there was one example um, in Saskatchewan where the Prime Minister was confronted by a man who said that... Uh, Islam and Christianity don't mix. And he accused the prime minister of allowing, quote unquote, them to come here, here being Canada, and even insinuated that they, quote unquote, they wanted to kill us. No, no, no. Sorry. sorry. Okay. Hang on. So how the prime minister responded was markedly different from last year even. So he responded by not oh, yeah, in object- August yes, when he told a woman that her racism wasn't welcome. Trudeau took a totally different approach. He didn't greet fire with fire. He kind of just uh, told the booing crowd to not boo and to respect this person's views and challenged where they got their news sources and kind of approached the issue through that angle. Then accusing them of uh, harboring hatred. Hmm. And of course, like the big news, Althea, I know you know this because it's reverberating in question period, the firing of John McCallum, Canada's ambassador to China, the extradition request for Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. Uh, McCallum, of course, was giving a briefing to Chinese reporters where he said um, he outlined basically the legal arguments that she might be able to make uh, in her extradition hearing. He pointed specifically to Donald Trump's comments um, uh, that suggested there was political interference. Right away, Andrew Scheer was going on on TV shows saying McCallum should be fired. I would fire him as prime minister. Trudeau resisted that. But then days later, McCallum basically doubled down. He told a reporter out in BC, hey, it'd be great if the US, you know, uh, canceled this whole thing. And then Trudeau fired his old friend McCallum. And we're still dealing with all of that. Mm-hmm. A busy month. Thanks for the refresher, guys. No problem, Althea. Thank you, Althea. It's good to have you back. Uh-huh, thanks. Welcome back. <laughs> Zian Lum is a political reporter in Ottawa, and Ryan Maloney is our senior politics editor in Toronto. Thanks, guys. I'm David Coletto, CEO, Abacus Data. David, can you give us an idea of, you know, as we enter 2019 and there's basically nine months left before the next election, what does the landscape look like? 
I think we're, we're appearing to be an increasingly competitive landscape. Um, at the end of 2018, the Liberals had opened up uh, a slight advantage over the Conservatives. That, I think, has, has shrunk a little bit over the last few weeks. The Liberals still have an advantage. They've got a nice, healthy lead in Quebec. They have a small lead in Ontario. They're doing well in British Columbia. Those underlying fundamentals still give the Liberals an advantage, but there's a lot of variables uh, on the horizon that makes predicting anything in October today a fool's errand. The strengths for the Prime Minister and his, and his party is that people still like Mr. Trudeau personally. Uh, more people like him than dislike him. That's rare these days in politics, uh, where very quickly people sour on their political leader. So he still has, I think, personal goodwill. But over the course of the last year and a half, whether it's the India trip, whether it's what's happened with Huawei and China, I think there's some, some questions being raised on his ability to manage international relations. At the same time, I think the broader mood of the country is one in which we recognize the economy is doing okay, but there's increasing anxiety around cost of living, around security, uh, that, that sort of global uncertainty is creating, whether it's Brexit or China or Trump. All of that noise is, is sort of, I think, complicating the issue. At the end of the day, though, I think, I think the, the Liberals have, have performed as well as you can expect, but are facing some headwinds. I think we have to first keep in mind that many people don't know really yet who Andrew Scheer or Jagmeet Singh or even Maxime Bernier is. They have a better sense, I think, of Elizabeth May because she's been around uh, longer, but even there you've got a third of Canadians who say they don't really know her that well. And so that, that remains the great unknown, is once people get to see them in a campaign, how do they react? I always point back to the 2015 election, Tom Mulcair and the NDP are leading, and yet almost half of Canadians say, I don't really know this guy very well. The moment they saw him in action compared to the others, their reaction wasn't overly positive. And so his, his numbers dropped and he went from first to third fairly quickly. So for Andrew Scheer, I think the, the opportunities are, and you saw it in his first week back, talking about affordability, talking about cost of living, using the carbon tax, they're going to be talking about how they make life more affordable to Canadians. That, there's a positive, I think, uh, public opinion environment for that. But I think he's vulnerable on questions, is he committed to dealing with climate change? Does he have the right values to be Prime Minister? For the New Democrats, the question is relevance. How do I get, how do we become part of this conversation? The thing I'm looking for and his great opportunity is his, the expectations on him are so low now that as many said of, or some said of Mr. Trudeau prior to the last election, if he showed up with his pants on, he'd win. I think Mr. Singh is in many the same way, that if he shows, if he wins the by-election, shows up in the House of Commons and performs at all as what we might expect a leader of a federal party to be able to do, that might get him more attention. Insightful stuff. Thanks very much, David. Thanks, Althea. David Coletto is the CEO of Advocates Data. The tone is certainly shifting. Um, as we move towards an election, people become more aggressive, less willing to work together. I'm Charlie Angus, Member of Parliament from Timmins James Bay. I, I certainly think there's a number of vulnerabilities. Uh, I think there is a lot of people who feel they're being left out by this new economy. 
Uh, and I think the Trudeau government has really focused on uh, on a lot of slogans, on a lot of image and a lot of false positivity, and I think it's not connecting. I think one of the dangers that the Conservatives are falling into is playing to the growing extremist base. Certainly the, the, the dog whistles around uh, the problem with questions of problems with illegal, you know, or irregular refugees at the border can really get magnified a thousandfold with a growing extremism and a growing racism in the country. And I think the Conservatives have to be very careful about the kind of fires that they're lighting. They think it will give them a short-term advantage, but I think it could be very damaging to them and damaging to Canadian civil life and politics in general. Election year is like the Super Bowl, you know, this is where everything happened now and then. Oh, I really enjoy it. Hello, my name is Gérard Deltel, a member of Parliament of Louis Saint Laurent Riding. You know, more and more, that the, um, this is crystal clear, the differences between different parties, which is correct. That's what democracy is all about. Uh, not a change of stone, but maybe a little bit more pressure on both sides. So how's your party in responding to the pressure and that, I guess, added stress of an election year? Well, uh, it's part of the job. If you cannot uh, stand, get out. <laughs> I mean, so, and it's true for us, and it's true for the government, and it's true for each and every politician, you know. More we are going closer to the election day, more pressure will be on. We have to make more, we have to be more serious, not, not more serious, but I mean, more accurate. If we say a number, if we say something, if we say a fear, we have to be very clean, not an approximation. If so, say that. We should be like that each and every day. But closer we are to the election date, more accurate we have to be. Yeah, I've been around, I've been through eight elections. I do, though, expect between now and June, uh, there's going to be a lot more uh, um, opposition or uh, tension between the, uh, the government and opposition members. I don't want to call it animosity, but I guess that kind of tension uh, on different positions and the, the truth will get stretched, in my view, from both sides. That was PEI Liberal MP Wayne Stern. We're already kind of seeing that. Yeah, you see that. You see it a lot more. <laughs> Take care. Hi, I'm Carl Belanger, the president of the Douglas Coldwell Foundation. Hi, I'm Rachel Curran, Senior Associate at Harper Associates and former Policy Director to PM Harper. Hi, I'm Greg McCachran. I'm Senior Vice President with Proof Strategies and a former Liberal Advisor to Cabinet Ministers. Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I wanted to start off by asking you if you think anything has changed. Uh, the parties have returned to the House of Commons. Um, have you noticed anything a little bit different? Um if there's one thing that I've noticed is that the each party is trying to frame the conversation. They're trying to frame their narrative, and they are a little more disciplined about that. I think that uh, that is quite noticeable, but I think it's happening at the detriment of the party's actual job in the in the House of Commons, which for the opposition is to hold the government to account. I thought that this week they were pretty weak on the biggest political file, which is the China-Huawei uh, crisis. Um, and I think the government is just getting away with it because the opposition is not asking pointed questions about what happened there. And the government, of course, is just trying to frame the conversation uh, you know, as well. Uh, and so therefore, they're not uh, answering uh, the questions, but they're, they're not also uh, governing the way they should be uh, because they're really in pre-election mode and everything that they do has, has, has to do with when the election is going to be called and when the election will happen. 
Yeah, I agree with that. So we've seen uh, an increase in rhetoric, an increase in intensity. This is clearly an election year. Everyone is turning straight to their talking points and straight to their narrative. And I think we're going to see that all the way through this session, all the way through this year. So they will be giving the messages that they want to give in question period and elsewhere. And whether it answers the question or not is completely irrelevant. Almost makes you wonder if we should just like, let's go to the polls right now. <laughs> yeah, the, the old uh, saying, there's nothing like a hanging in the morning to clear the mind. And I think once people came back to Ottawa and it's 2019 and wait, that's an election year. Everyone got into election mode right away. The challenge is sometimes when you over-prepare for a race, you see people do a false start. Mm. And I think this week, to, to pick up on Carl's point, question period was uh, um, a bit underwhelming because they were trying to do too much, too soon, too fast. And there wasn't a lot of clear narratives, in my opinion, from a lot of the parties. And that includes the governing party in terms of getting their message back out. So I think everybody needs to kind of catch their breath, realize that there's a sitting of parliament that has we have to go through. There's a budget that we have to go through. There's a summer we have to go through. But a lot of things can happen. If you look at 2015, and then you would have predicted what was going to happen between Canada and US elections over this term, or Canada-China relations over this term, no one would have predicted that. One of the things we saw over the Christmas break was the um, gap between the Conservatives and the Liberals narrow. Um, how does that change things? And, uh, you know, we saw uh, fundraising numbers as well this week where um, the Green Party has done surprisingly quite well. Um, Mr. Bernier did not get a chance to, um, you know, table his quarterly report, but he's out on Twitter saying how much money the party has raised. How does the introduction of these players um, change things uh, as we, you're looking at me with a, a which, skeptical which, which look. Players, which players, you mean the Bernier, the popular party? Yeah, you know, the like climate party? change and populism. How does that frame the discussion for both Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Scheer? Well, in, in the case of Mr. Bernier, the danger for Andrew Scheer is that it, um, he has to protect his right flank. And, and you've seen since the arrival of Maxime Bernier and his party that it's a little more, they're a little more strident when it comes to some certain themes. And I think that's totally to protect the right flank, to prevent Maxim Bernier from making gains there. And, and there's a danger in that because, of course, that's not the kind of messaging that works for the red-blue switch voter that is so important if the conservatives are going to form government next time around. So that's a danger. In, in terms of the Green Party, uh, I think you have to pull back a little bit uh, and look at how well they have done in some provinces over the past few months, years. Breakthrough in PEI, balance of power or quasi-balance of power in New Brunswick, a breakthrough in Ontario, balance of power in British Columbia, actually holding the government in place right now. Um, and so the potential for the Green Party uh, is tremendous. Uh, in PEI, they are actually leading in the polls. They could form government in the election was held tomorrow. Um, if that happens, the provincial election will happen before the federal election. You don't know how people are going to react. You don't know how people who have always thought, well, I'm not going to waste my vote with the Greens. They can't win. Suddenly, they've won. And you can see that trend uh, continuing, certainly with the fundraising, uh, with record numbers for the Greens. I think it's something that the Liberals need to be very mindful of. I know that Max Bernier gets a lot of attention because he's fun to watch. Uh, but if I was the Liberals, I'd be paying a lot closer attention to the Greens. Yeah, 
I, look, I so I'm not convinced the Green Party is actually going to do that well. I think Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party are very much aware of the need to hang on to the NDP voters that they scooped up in 2015 and also hang on to uh, potential Green voters as well. Um, and so I think part of the reason or part of the rationale behind the introduction of the carbon tax this year uh, is to appeal exactly to those voters. I think when we see the government's budget this spring, uh, there will be any number of initiatives in there that appeal to uh, the left flank, to NDP voters, to Green voters, in an attempt um, to hang on to that uh, that group of folks heading into an election. As far as Mr. Bernier goes, he's a real gift to Justin Trudeau. I mean, he's, sure. he's nothing but a gift uh, uh, to Trudeau. Much more problematic, I think, for Mr. Scheer. He's not only sort of forcing Mr. Scheer, as Carl says, to, to kind of look to his right flank, but even setting the, the conversation on things like immigration and border control, yeah. forcing Mr. Scheer to respond, uh, forcing a debate on issues that perhaps Mr. Scheer would, would rather not concentrate on. So uh, I think it's much more problematic um, for the Conservative Party to have Mr. Bernier out there than it is for Mr. Trudeau, frankly. Can Mr. Scheer ignore Mr. Bernier? Uh, look, I think he can try, um, but he's got, you know, uh, Mr. Bernier is going very aggressively after Mr. Scheer's voters. So his real objective seems to be to replace Mr. Scheer as the, you know, the leader of the party on the right. Um, and that is kind of his sole strategy right now. But I can tell you that uh, it, it's such a gift to, to Justin Trudeau. Um, that split on the right um, will mean that he is reelected over and over and over again as long as it exists. And we've seen this before in the 90s as well. There, there's some things that Shear is doing that he gets accused of playing to his own base and he's not opening up his party enough in order to win. But I wonder if he's not playing to his own base. He's trying to play, play to the people that have left or are potentially thinking of leaving to support Max Bernier. One final note on the narrowing gap between the Liberals and the Conservatives. We always have to keep in mind that the Conservatives' vote, uh, as it stands, is not very efficient. Um, if you look at the original breakdown, you will see that Conservatives are very strong in some areas and very weak in other areas, while the Liberals are a little more spread evenly. So so the problem for, for the Conservatives is that in writings where uh, Maxim Bernier will run a strong candidate or a strong campaign, uh, 2 3 4% could be the difference uh, between a conservative seat or a liberal seat, and that's where it's going to be played out during the election. Yeah, that the national polls that you referenced, there was one last week from a, a different pollster that I was looking at, and you need regional breakdowns. Mm -hmm. And the liberals are still doing very well in Quebec, and that's what they need. Extremely well. Yeah. Um, they're doing, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the poll you mentioned, not so well in BC, but the one last week, they were doing, the liberals were doing very well in BC. So I think that's where they're going to win. What I find very odd is Ontario, and it's very split. And although last this month there was a poll showing that Doug Ford himself was not very popular, but his party's very popular. Um, what I think the Liberals could benefit from is some sort of breakout in Ontario where this unpopularity of Doug Ford is actually attached to Conservatives. Um, we'll see whether or not how, how much Sheer wants to be associated with, with Ford. Let's talk about strength and vulnerabilities of the party leaders um, and the parties, but I, I guess mostly the leaders. Um, a lot of people still uh, don't really know who Andrew Scheer is. Um, 
as we get into this election mode, um, where do you think there are opportunities and what do you think the party leaders need to do to address their weaknesses? Let me jump in on on Andrew Scheer. I agree his relative anonymity is 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 a real weakness. The strength, though, is that he's inherited this um, really effective organization from former Prime Minister Harper, both in terms of fundraising uh, and candidates. Uh, you know, the Conservative Party's uh, strong. It's raising a lot of money. It's raising more money than the... $24 million. It's incredible yeah, that they yeah, raise yeah, yeah. more money as in opposition than the government actually does. Yeah, well, mm. and that speaks to the strength of the organization. I, I don't know, but it speaks to the strength of the organization that the leader has uh, working for him and underneath him, and that's a, that's a huge strength. Um, really, though, I think the weakness for him is going to be finding, or his real challenge, is going to be finding a message that resonates across the country. I mean, Carl, and and Greg have already alluded to this. Energy politics, pipeline politics, super important, but really regional resonance there. So the Conservative Party, unsurprisingly, is very strong in Alberta, Saskatchewan, parts of Manitoba. But when you look at the numbers beyond that, that's not where an election is going to be won. Those three provinces together have fewer seats than the province of Quebec. So the challenge for Andrew Scheer is not only getting his own profile up, but also finding a message that's going to resonate nationally. The new messaging that we heard this week about if you elect Justin Trudeau, you'll have higher taxes. Can that address? Absolutely. So that is a real attempt to appeal to voters across the country, including in Ontario. And as Greg has said, that province is is very much divided and up for grabs. So I think that message about your costs are going up under Justin Trudeau, your life is going to become more unaffordable. There's this carbon tax now in place that's going to make everything you purchase, including fuel and home heating and food and, you know, retail goods uh, more expensive. That uh, the focus on that message is really an attempt to talk to voters in Ontario and across the country who are worried about affordability, worried about cost of living issues. So it is it, it is exactly that an attempt to broaden his message. I, I think broadly, uh, a, a potential strength and weakness is very broad for both Trudeau and Scheer is around facts. Um, I've noticed, and again, this is just as an observer of Twitter recently. Um, the Conservatives seem to be getting called out more and more around um, what they're saying and what it's based on and what the facts are around that. And this is where I kind of go into a a weakness for the Liberals. They have been not as nimble uh, on this. They spent the first two years doing sunny ways, where I am not a sunny ways type of person. This will shock you. (laughs) But, you know, if you're not reminding Canadians of why they picked your party over the other party, um, you, you know, you've kind of lost it. Now they want to do that. And it's, you know, it's time has kind of moved on a little bit. So I, I think the, um, I, I remember when I was in government and uh, during question period, you would see Jason Ken- Kenny stand up and he would bolt to the lobby and he was part of this team and it was a rapid response team. And within the question period, if a liberal minister had said something wrong or it wasn't factual, they would be back up with another question. And I remember working for the Liberals in opposition where the uh, the, the question period list was sacrosanct. You couldn't ever take somebody out of the list and, and, and might make the news that night. No, God forbid you do that. So the Conservatives were very, very nimble on this and the Liberals were never, ever as responsive. And I think right now with everything that we've heard, all these catchphrases around fake news and everything, um, facts are going to really matter in the next couple of months. On Andrew Shear's weaknesses... Um 
I think that uh, pointing out is uh, relative anonymity is is a good point. Uh, it is a weakness, but it's also a strength because it means that he has not been framed in the public mind. People still don't know what to think of him, so there's still time for the conservatives to make him uh, what they want him to make to be made. Because the liberals, frankly, they've attempted to link him with uh, you know. Um, other conservative leaders across the country which are not well-liked, like Doug Ford and Jason Kenney and, and a few others. And, and in fact, that, that cover of McLean's where you had Andrew Scheer with the Four Nights of the Apocalypse, that, <laughs> that was the frame uh, that the liberals would have dreamt of. Uh, you know, in their wildest dreams, they could not have gotten a better cover. Um, uh, and so that's the danger for Andrew Scheer. It's not himself pers personally, but his allies and, and what they're doing provincially and how they the federal liberals will use that against him. And you see that in the messaging of the liberals time and time again. Um, so far, it has not hurt Scheer, uh, maybe a bit around the Franco-Ontarian file, uh, but there's still time for them to turn that around. In terms of Justin Trudeau, the one thing that I do note is um, his own personal numbers have dropped every year since the election by about 10 points uh, to the point where the Trudeau brand is about even with the liberal brand now, uh, which should be worrisome for the liberals because it is really the Trudeau brand that that put him over the top during the 2015 election. And if the trend continues, and, and this goes with the, you know, the, the, the fatigue of being in government and making decisions and breaking promises, um, if, that, if that trend continues, it could give an opportunity for the conservatives to, uh, to capitalize on that. One thing that strikes me is that the prime minister seems to be a lot better um, running as an underdog than he does running as um, somebody f who is being attacked by the underdogs. Um, I don't know if you agree with my assessment there, but this election is going to be very interesting to watch, I think, because of that reason. I think what you speak to is... Um, you know, I, I, I was on another panel recently with Carl, and I said, this is not the golden age of parliament. And I've been thinking about it since then. And, and really, there is a lot of, um, there's a real lack of experience that is kind of handicapping the three major parties. Um, you know, the NDP, the, the, the troubles that their leader is going through. Um, Justin Trudeau, you know, went from third place to government, has a cabinet of mostly newbies, and there's very few of the new to politics cabinet ministers that have been unqualified successes. And then you have uh, Andrew Scheer, who never spent any time in cabinet, and he's got a, a caucus. The, the, his party seems to be very split. You have the people who ran for leader or have been a, or wanted to run for leader very angry on Twitter. Uh, all the time, and then some potential real stars who are waiting to ask questions, and instead, the woman who crossed the floor from the Liberals to the Conservatives gets a question every day, and, and they don't. So there's a real challenge in terms of the lack of experience. I think for, for Trudeau, it's this lack of, you know, he has to wear the mantle. He's become Prime Minister, he has to own it, he has to feel confident in it. Uh, on um, Wednesday's question period, where he took all the questions, I was watching him, and as the question period went on, and, and full marks to him for taking all the questions for, for an entire question period, and you must get tired and dehydrated. Without giving any real answers. Yeah, well, I mean, That's come on. That's a key I skill, mean, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> that has not changed. <laughs> but um, I just noticed that his answers were getting faster, and he, you know, he was stammering more, and I thought, you know, Sir, he was take getting a, irritated. Take a you know? breath. Yeah. You won. Own this. Does anything 
that matters in Ottawa now? Yeah, no, I, so I, it, I'm not, it, I'm not it convinced. Doesn't, it doesn't yeah. matter. I mean, Mulcair yeah. was the example. If question period matter, Mulcair would be prime minister. Well, yeah, yeah well. I don't think people are paying attention. I don't think average voters are paying attention to what's happening on Twitter or what's happening in the House of Commons. No, you but, know, they but pay, I, they I see it as an indication about where he, to, to answer Althea's yeah. question yeah. about where he is yeah. uh, in terms of that comfort level as underdog yeah. versus, you know, yeah. being the guy on top. Yeah, I mean, there are pros and cons to running as, you know, the prime minister versus the underdog. You know, on the one hand, he is the voice of experience now because he's been doing the job for almost four years. On the other hand, you have, as Carl says, all of the, the weight uh, of decision-making that comes along with that, including making decisions that people aren't very happy with. So yeah, his approval numbers have dropped for sure. They're lower than where they were in 2015. But he is still a well-liked, popular, charismatic leader. Um, you know, he's still the, the brand that's driving his party. And this, despite... I would say, a record of governance that is extremely spotty at best. And I'm being polite when I say that. And there are a series of total debacles, including, as we saw most recently on the foreign policy front. So his record of governance should be a real liability. But so far, his personal brand, his personal popularity uh, is keeping the Liberal Party numbers, keeping his numbers relatively high. So it's really that that, that, sort of, that sort of personality politics that appeal to people that he's got that the other parties are going to need to wrestle with. Okay, let me end it here by asking you what you're going to be watching for in the next weeks and months ahead. Well, I mean, I think the, the, the first thing that could change the political landscape is what's going to happen on February 25th. Mm -hmm. uh, the by-election in Burnaby South and, and the other two by-elections, but mostly Burnaby South, will decide the fate of NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Um, uh, I, if he wins, uh, you know, he's going to be an MP after that for three months and a half before the House Risers. Is that enough time to turn the ship around for the NDP? We'll have to see. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the big one, right? The real unknown here is how the NDP is going to perform. Certainly on the Conservative Party side, they're going to be looking for Jagmeet Singh, not just to win that by-election, but to, you know, show up in the House of Commons and, and, and make some kind of positive impact. He really has nowhere to go but up at this point. So he's benefiting from low expectations, right? Things are so bad right now for the NDP um, that he really, I hope, uh, has nowhere to go uh, but up. So that's going to be the really interesting story, I think, for the first couple of months of this year, is what happens with the NDP and how does Jagmeet Singh, assuming he wins that by-election, manage to capitalize that in a positive way for the NDP? You're assuming that it, or maybe you're telling us that it's a better scenario if he wins than if he loses. Depends who you ask at the NDP. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the, certainly for Jack Singh, it is a better scenario and it is an easier scenario and a cheaper scenario considering the fundraising numbers. Um, listen, I believe he's going to win Burnaby South. Um, but but I do know that there's all kinds of plan being put into action in case he doesn't, and uh, and uh, and then we'll have to see what happens on February 25th. I mean, and the other thing about the February February 25th by-election, of course, is what's going to happen in Outremont, because Outremont was the seat that Mulcair won in a by-election in 2007 and was a precursor to the Orange Wave in Quebec. Uh, Outremont is a liberal stronghold. It has always been a fortress for the liberals. Uh, the NDP was able to wrestle it away from them uh, with, on, under very particular set of circumstances. Um, can they hang on to a strong second finish? Or will they uh, collapse the way they've collapsed in other by-election in Quebec? And that will be a sign of, of things to come, maybe, uh, in the general election. 
Greg, you get the last word. What are you watching for? Well, for the NDP, the by-election, they're going to have to sort their laundry after that. For Sheer, I think he has to um, perhaps add some professionalism to his office. Um, and for the Liberals, it reminds me when we were in uh, minority government, we had an edict from PMO and it was do no harm. Um, so, you know, um, perhaps going to a press conference, including ambassadors, uh, and, and airing some thought balloons is not, you know, as if you're a, a cabinet minister, um, concentrate, you've, you've probably finished your mandate letter, you know, accentuate the positive. This is not a time to do, um, big, um, wide policy ideas. This is about getting the job done. And the other thing I'd like to see for the Liberal Party is that they don't count on Quebec, um, to get them through, that they look at uh, Alberta and they try to find, for example, they need a Ralph Goodale of Alberta for their party. They need to find a couple of really strong candidates that they have actually a good chance of winning those seats so that if they do form government, they're not in a situation that other liberal governments have been in the past with, you know, uh, they treat it as a flyover province. When you look at the list of the liberals' co-chairs, though, for their election campaign, they have four co-chairs. Um, somebody from BC, somebody from Quebec, somebody from New Brunswick, somebody from Ontario, and somebody from Saskatchewan. I don't read that as them thinking that they have any potential in getting more seats in Florida. Yeah. I hope they're listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, Rachel, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate your insights. Thank you. Thanks, thank you. Sophie. Thank you. Cal Bélanger is the president of the Douglas Caldwell Foundation and a past national director of the NDP. Rachel Curran was Prime Minister Stephen Harper's director of policy. She's now a senior associate with Harper & Associates. Greg McEachern is a senior vice president with Proof Strategies and served as a senior advisor to several liberal cabinet ministers. Some of the voices you heard this week will be joining us throughout this election year. Thanks to Carl, Rachel, Greg, and David. And a warm welcome back to our senior politics editor, Ryan Maloney, who recently welcomed baby Owen. As we prepare to head out across the country, we would love to hear from you. What issues are on your mind? Who would you like to hear from? Send us your thoughts and story ideas. You can reach me through Facebook or Twitter, at Althea Raj. That's A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J. Big thank you, as always, to Zian Lam, who helps me produce the show, and to Stephanie Warner, who knits it all nicely together. Follow-up's executive producer is Andre Lau. I'm Althea Raj. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>